Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 4. We are continuing on in our study of this glorious letter, the greatest letter ever written. We'll be picking up where we left off last week, but just a reminder, as we have come into chapter 4 in Romans, after establishing every human being's great need for salvation, that we are hopeless and helpless in our sin, in need of God himself to reach down and pull us out of that pit, after establishing that the only way God does this is not through our earning, not through our working or deserving, but as a gift of his grace by faith alone, Paul in chapter 4 has been zeroing in now on Abraham as the great example of how it is that man can only find this kind of salvation through grace by faith alone, and that this is the only way it has ever worked. This is how it has always been. There was never a different plan. There wasn't one plan in the Old Testament and one plan in the New Testament. It's always been one plan, one way of salvation. And Paul's really been showing us in chapter 4 how the saving faith by which Abraham believed God and was justified is identical to the saving faith by which we must believe God and be justified. And so as we come now to verse 18, in our next little section here of chapter 4, we're going to see the nature of that saving faith. And so let's look together now at verse 18 through verse number 22. Hear the word of the Lord. In hope he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your great gift to us in your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, thank you for this treasure that, that we hold in our hands through, through which by your Spirit's working we hear the very voice of our God. We hear you speak clearly and purely and perfectly. Pray, God, that your Spirit would would illuminate our study of your word, that you would accomplish that which only you can do in causing dead hearts to live, blinded eyes to see, deaf ears to be made to hear. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would accomplish that which you can only do by transforming your people more and more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So thus far in the book of Romans, Paul has had an awful lot to say about faith. And now, as we come to these verses, we are really dealing with the question of, so what exactly is faith? What, what is this, this faith? And, and when we say faith, what we really mean is saving faith. That's what Paul's talking about. What is that kind of faith? Look like. Most importantly, how can I know if I've got it? That's the real question. It's one thing to know what it is. It's another thing to say, do I have saving faith or do I not? And, and the truth is, the reason I want to make that distinction, we're not just talking about faith as a concept. Paul's dealing with saving faith. And the reason is because 
Many people think that they have that kind of faith, but what they don't have is actually saving faith. They've got something else. Or to put it another way, not all faith is saving faith. Saving faith is more than just an intellectual assent to something. Here is a a set of, of claims, and I believe that those claims are true. Saving faith is more than that. Saving faith is, just, is more than just feeling very, very strongly about something. Saving faith is not based on, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, mathematical probability. In fact, it's not a natural faith at all. Saving faith is not something we can generate within ourselves. Saving faith is the spirit-created, supernatural faith that radically transforms the whole person. It, it produces in us belief. It produces in us trust in God, trust in his word. Saving faith goes all the way down to the will of the person. It it creates the decisive choice that commits one's life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage, Paul's going to point out several aspects of true saving faith as modeled in Abraham's life. There's a million different ways we could go, even with this handful of verses, but we're going to kind of zero in on, on that. What do we see about saving faith? The first thing we see is saving faith believes God. Saving faith, in in particular, it believes God's word. It believes God so much that it believes everything that he says. Look again at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And so we get this strange statement right off the bat. He hoped, uh, in hope he believed against hope. What exactly does that mean? We we read our Bibles sometimes and, and I think we get used to reading certain things and they don't even stick out to us anymore as a very strange statement. This is a very strange statement. In hope he believed against hope. At first glance, it doesn't make sense. It it seems paradoxical. Here's hope being pitted against hope. But but what we're seeing here is a a collision that's going on in the life of Abraham, in the life of the believer. There is man-centered hope on the one side that is based in human wisdom, human reason, human understanding, based even in our perception of what a situation might be. And then pitted against that on the other side is a God-centered hope, which is rooted and grounded in the word of God. And so it's this hope, it's this God-centered hope that's rooted in God, rooted in God's word, that causes Abraham to believe God's promises. And so when it says here that he believed, that's the exact same word as faith. It's the same Greek word translated two different ways. And it means to, to trust in to commit yourself to, to to rely on, to rest in. So one of the first things we see about true saving faith and the nature of it is that it, it drives out unbelief. The way the light drives darkness away, so saving faith drives out unbelief. It, it defies human expectations. It defies human calculation. It defies even human abilities. Saving faith puts its trust in God and his promises over and against everything else. So if God has made a promise to us in his word and natural reason tells us that can't possibly be, saving faith goes with God. Saving faith trusts in God, is not swayed by that. 
Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, saving faith focuses upon the bare word of God and nothing else. We don't need something. If we've got a promise from God in his word, we don't need anything else. We don't need any confirmation. We've got the word of God. And so natural human wisdom, Paul is pointing out to us, says that the promise God had made to Abraham was completely impossible. There's no possible way God's promise to Abraham could be fulfilled. God promised Abraham what? Well, Paul tells us, you'll be the father of many nations. He even says, when we get that little statement, so shall your offspring be, if you remember the story, he tells Abraham, count the stars. And Abraham said, I can't do it. And God says, well, that's what your offspring are gonna be like. This is an amazing promise. And it is an amazing promise that is humanly impossible. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that. From a human standpoint, from a medical standpoint, this is completely impossible. Abraham is old, almost 100 years old, Paul tells us, far too old to father a child. Just in case we, we miss that by the statement of how old he is, Paul says, and his body is as good as dead. <laughs> just, just let's be clear here. On top of that, his wife Sarah is also old, too old to have children, but if you want to add something else on top of that, Paul wants to make it even more clear. He points out that she's been barren all of these years. She's not only old, she's barren. She's never been able to have kids. And so human reason, human wisdom, human understanding, our assessment of the situation and what reality must be says God's promise can never come true to this couple. And of course, we, we see with Abraham even some, uh, some trying to figure out how we can make this promise. God's promise must be true. How can we make it happen? Uh, and so that, that's what human wisdom does. And, and, and here's the limitation. Here's the problem. Human wisdom, human reason does not take into account the omnipotent, holy, and living God. This is why God's promises in his word are set up in opposition to human reason. Human reason doesn't have a category for an almighty God who made all things, who sustains all things, who can do whatever he wants to do. But saving faith is built on that foundation. Saving faith trusts in this God. Saving faith puts its hope in God who is unseen rather than the things that our natural eyes can see, rather than the things that our natural minds can conceive. And so here's Abraham in a hopeless situation. God has made a promise to him, a promise that couldn't possibly come true. So how does Abraham respond in the midst of that when hope is pitted against hope? The hope of, of this God-centered hope that says God has made this promise and this man-centered hope that says and there's no possible way for that to happen. What does he do? Well, there's a textual variant here that I need to point out to us. Verse, verse 19 says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, and then it says, and when he considered his wife's barrenness. But some manuscripts have an extra word there, and so if you're reading along from the King James, you might have already spotted this. Because the King James reads, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's wombs, of Sarah's womb. And so how does this happen? These two things are saying actually two opposite things about whether or not he considered his own body and Sarah's body. Well, we have talked about this some as we went through the Gospel of John, if you were with us when we went through that book. You may know that there are well over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament at this point, ancient manuscripts, 
And among these, there is over 99% agreement. They're, they're, they're identical to each other over 99% of the time. This happens to be one of that tiny fraction where they're not all the same. Not all the manuscripts are the same. And so we might be tempted to freak out a little bit. Shouldn't they all be exactly the same? You, you even, in your prayer this morning, called it the inerrant word of God. Without error. Doesn't that mean? No, what we mean is what the apostles wrote was fully without error. Perfect. Every single word. Not one word added. Not one word missing. Perfect word from God. We don't mean that when a human being tries to copy one piece of paper onto another piece of paper that he did so perfectly and without error. Although, as you can see, with all of these manuscripts that we find and the high degree of, of agreement between them, you can see God was even superintending that process to make sure that, that we now, and, and what we're going to talk about just very, very briefly, we're not about to go into a lecture here, uh, should increase our confidence in what we have in our English Bibles, not decrease our confidence. Uh, and so here's a thing you hear a lot from, from a group of Christians that would say the only viable English translation is the King James Version, and all other English translations are liberal trash. Uh, that, that is a popular view. It is a very popular view in our community. Um, and I know some of you may feel that way. Um, and, and what happens is, and you'll see this stuff on social media a lot, there'll be a comparison. Here's several verses in the King James and now let's put up several verses in a different translation, and do you see what's happened? Do you see how they've taken these words out? Really important words. Uh, it says Jesus is Lord here in the King James, and in the other translation it doesn't say that. And so maybe you've seen these things, and that's shocking. For those of us that love the Word of God, we should be very concerned if we think someone has tampered with the Word of God. Should we not? The answer is yes. We should be very concerned if someone has tampered with the Word of God. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, here's what's going on. Very briefly, it is not a conspiracy. Again, it should increase, not decrease, our confidence in the Bible. When the King James was translated, it, it was published in 1611, many of the oldest manuscripts that we now have of that giant stack of manuscripts were still lost to humanity. They were in pots in caves somewhere. We didn't know they existed. So there was just one manuscript tradition that had followed out, and that's what the King James was translated from. But when many, many, many older manuscripts were found, older than the ones the King James had been translated from, it became clear certain additions had been made over time. And so the older you got, you find out, oh, it's like six generations in for the first time that we get this beautiful statement. Um, and so what I would say to you is this, that the starting point that we want to use, if we want to say what is truly belongs in Scripture and what doesn't, the starting point cannot be the King James Bible. The starting point cannot be some English translation of the Bible. And the starting point shouldn't even be if the statement is orthodox and we agree with it. You see in this verse, the King James says, Jesus is Lord, and this other one leaves out the word Lord, so the King James must be right because we want to affirm that Jesus is Lord. What I'm saying to you is that's exactly how that got in there. Some scribe went, we could help a little bit here. Let's just make sure it's super clear. Jesus, who is Lord, and we move this little note from the margin in generation one and two, in generation three it goes into the text. 
That's what's going on. So the reality of the situation is not that other trans, uh, modern translations have subtracted things out of the Bible. What's going on is the manuscripts the King James was translated for had things that had been added to the Bible. Now, I, I had a short exchange with someone just this week about this who felt very passionate that that was the product of liberal scholarship. And what I would just say to you is, Words on an ancient scrap of paper are neither liberal nor conservative. They're just words on an old scrap of paper. A liberal scholarship did not make one text tradition add words several generations in that none of the others have. That's not liberalism. And because I love the Word of God so much, I think it's just as big a problem to add words to the text of Scripture as it is to take them away, even if they're good words. You tracking with me? So I wanted to just take that little detour because this verse has it. And I know in our community there's a lot of that. Um, and I know there's genuine concern because we're people who love the Word of God. Um, and so I'd be happy to talk more with you about that if you still have that concern. But um, really all it takes is looking at the textual evidence to see there's a pretty clear path in the way it went. Uh, and so... Uh, so, so this text is one of those differences, and it feels like a huge difference, like a huge, huge difference. And, and here's the other thing I want to say. All of those disputed texts that the King James uh, is translated from a text tradition that has one thing, and then we see other ones that don't have it, there's absolutely nothing in there that isn't taught somewhere else in the Bible. All those verses where they go, you see how they remove Jesus as Lord? Right, but there's 480 other verses that say it in that translation, right? So, so they try to make it sound like this is a Bible that doesn't want you to know that Jesus is Lord. No, they're all, it's all in there. This feels like a huge one. Either Abraham did consider himself and did consider Sarah, or Abraham did not consider himself and did not consider Sarah. Let me show you why that's not a huge deal and that's not even the point of the passage. Here, here's our two options. Either Abraham did not think about his body, did not consider his age, did not consider Sarah's age or her barrenness, but instead looked to God and believed his promise, or Abraham did think about his body and his age, did think about Sarah and her body and her age and her barrenness, and he knew that was a problem, and he knew, earthly speaking, that meant the promise was impossible, but instead of believing that, he looked to God and believed his promise. The point here is, Abraham looked to God and believed his promise, and I actually think it goes better with Paul's point for us to see, no, Abraham knew what was going on. Saving faith is not a blind faith. Saving faith is not like, here's, all, here's the reality of life, and I'm just going to ignore that completely, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm just blindly believing something. No, saving faith is rooted in reality. It's rooted in, though, the greatest reality, which is, okay, yeah, man says this, but here's God who made all things. So Abraham doesn't consider those things to stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. I mean, this, this creator, God had spoken to him. This creator, God had saved him. So Paul's point is, these things didn't weaken his faith. How could this not have weakened his faith? Well, it's because his eyes weren't fixed on himself. He's fixing his eyes on God. 
He's fixing his eyes on God's promises. He's looking to God who made all things. He's looking to God who sustains all things. Abraham in this situation and Sarah could have no confidence in themselves whatsoever. Okay, God's made this promise. The father of many nations, descendants as numerous as the stars. Sarah, we could totally pull this off. No, he's got no, there's nothing. This isn't a try harder situation. They were incapable of causing this promise to be fulfilled. Abraham had to fully trust in God alone. That was it. He had to lift his eyes to God and trust in him. He had, though, no previous historical evidence that this could happen. It's not as though they knew some 120-year-old couple who had had a couple of kids. There's no proof that this could ever happen. There's no evidence he could look to. But he believed that God could do the impossible. He, he trusted God's word and he wasn't looking for additional proof. He wasn't looking for proof within himself. He wasn't looking for proof within Sarah. He wasn't looking at other people to see proof. Okay, this can happen. No, he looked to God alone and he believed God's promise. He believed God's word. And so his faith wasn't shaken. And, and friends, we have much greater reason to trust God than Abraham had. We have, for one thing, seen the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham, these impossible promises to Abraham. Abraham at that point hadn't seen the fulfillment. We have seen the fulfillment. We know that Abraham did become the father of many nations. We know that, that in time... The Lord Jesus himself came as Abraham's offspring, the great fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The Lord who died and who rose again, who is the savior of the world. We know the promise that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars and that his true descendants now exist as the vast multitude of people, as Paul has shown us, who believe in this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have come to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know all these promises are true. And it's the past fulfillment of these promises that guarantees our promise of salvation. We have much greater reason to trust. Even though, humanly speaking, unrighteous sinners like us, remember the early chapters of Romans? Week after week after week of Paul drilling us into the ground, all of humanity, helpless, hopeless, in locked in a prison cell at the bottom of an abyss of God's wrath, of rebellion, unable to get out but not wanting to get out. Humanly speaking, it's impossible that unrighteous sinners like us could ever stand before a holy God, justified, in right standing, accepted, loved, rejoiced in, that's completely impossible, humanly speaking. God is the righteous judge, and we are nothing but unrighteousness. But God has made us a promise in his word. God has promised that all who believe in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. God has promised that his, the, the very righteousness of Christ will be credited to us. God has promised that he will bless us with every spiritual blessing. These are astounding promises, gracious promises, impossible promises. And because God has given us his word, they are rock-solid, guaranteed promises. Isn't that great? 
That's why we can sing, it is well with my soul. That's why we can sing, though though the cup I'm drinking right now is a bitter cup. That my Father's care is surrounding me in this. That every morning his, his new mercies will be there available to me. It's because of these promises in the word of God that are unshakable. Arthur W. Pink says, everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets. He never fails. He never falters. He never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement or covenant or threatening, he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it, as Numbers 23 says? This is who God is. It's in his nature to be faithful. It's in his nature to keep his word, to keep his promises. He is unchanging. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love for a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful. His promises are true. We can trust his word. And saving faith trusts God. Saving faith believes God's word. Secondly, saving faith gives glory to God. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So Abraham did not waver concerning the promises of God. To to waver means to vacillate between two opinions, back and forth, to flip-flop. Instead, Paul tells us, he grew strong in his faith. This is, this is literally here in the Greek in the passive voice. He didn't waver. He didn't flip-flop. Instead, he was made strong in his faith. This is a divine gift from God. Abraham didn't go, I'm not going to flip-flop. I'm going to be strong here. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, God made him strong as he looked to God. Because we know from Scripture that Abraham did struggle, don't we? If you're familiar with the story of Abraham and his life, He wasn't always triumphant. He fell into temptation and sin. Paul's point is his faith was always triumphant. In other words, it was real faith. It was God-given faith. And even when Abraham stumbled, even when he missed the mark, even when he sinned, his faith grew stronger afterwards because God continued to affirm his covenant with Abraham. So Abraham would stumble and God wouldn't throw him away. God would pick him up. God would restore him and his strength grew and grew and grew. His faith was a real faith. It was a growing faith. So Paul says Abraham's faith grew strong as he gave glory to God. So he's not just looking to God, God bless me, God God grant me these gifts that you have promised, give me all these things. No, he's looking at God. Who's the one that promised? His eyes are fixed on God. He considered who God is, and that is what made all the difference. He he worshiped God by trusting in who God is. So he might have considered the eternality of God. This God who called him out of nowhere, who's, who's without beginning, who's without ending. This God who's not created. This God who's not dependent on anyone or anything. This God that is completely sufficient within himself. 
You also must have considered the majesty of God, that, that God created everything, that God rules over everything, that he's upholding everything by the word of his power. You might have thought of the holiness of God, God's perfection, God's righteousness, God's purity, that God is trans- transcendent, far above all the creatures that he has made. That's the nature of saving faith. It looks outside of itself and it looks to God. And as faith looks at God, faith is strengthened. Abraham looked to God and was enabled in his faith. As as he trusted God, which brought glory to God, God strengthened his faith. And that's what God does. Why when we sing hymns together on a Sunday morning are they about God and not about us? Most churches uh, this morning were singing a lot of songs about themselves. I like to call them Jesus is my boyfriend songs. They're about how God loves me so much that he'd like to cuddle and just be near me and do great things for me. How I've got such great worth within myself. Why don't we sing songs like that? It's because our faith isn't strengthened by singing songs like that. Our faith is strengthened by lifting our eyes to God and considering who he is, what he has done, what he has promised. Amen? And that kind of trust in God brings glory to God. God. Saving faith is always glorifying God. Paul has shown us in Romans already that the nature of unbelievers is to not consider God. To, to not thank God. Chapter 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In fact, it's in their very nature, he tells us in the next verse, chapter 1, verse 22, to exchange the glory of God and worship idols instead. That's the nature of all humanity. But believers are always glorifying God. Why is that? Well, it's because, as Paul has shown us, salvation is by grace through faith, and this excludes human boasting. Therefore, true saving faith gives all the glory to God. God... God is glorified in the salvation of of a sinner whose heart was once turned totally against him, who was once his enemy, who once never considered him, who once never offered thanks to him, who once exchanged the worship of the creator God for the worship of idols. When God saves such a person, he is thoroughly glorified. He receives all the glory in all of salvation. God delivered us from darkness, from death, from corruption. He delivered us from hell itself so that, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, so that we may be, we who were in that pit of rebellion, enemies with God, as Paul had said, so that we may be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the purpose for which we were made. It is the purpose for which we were redeemed. It's it's the reason that we have been given such exceedingly great and precious promises from God. And so it glorifies God when we believe him, when we trust in him. And it glorifies God when our lives show forth that we actually have been saved by him, that we actually have been made new, that we have been transformed. When our lives testify by the way we live to the truth and goodness and power of this gloriously saving gospel, God is glorified in all of that. So saving faith is constantly glorifying God. Third, saving faith produces full assurance. 
Verse 20 again, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham believes not just in a God who is worthy of worship. He has faith in a God who is able to do all that he has promised. He's, it says, fully convinced, fully assured, confident, certain. Again, how did Abraham come to this place? How did he come to this place of full assurance? Well, it was not by looking at himself that he got there. He wouldn't have had this assurance if he had looked at himself. If he had meditated on himself, if he had said, how can I figure this out? There's no assurance there. No, it came by meditating on God. He must have thought of God's omnipresence. God's everywhere, all the time. There's nowhere that's beyond his reach. There's no circumstance where he doesn't see, where he doesn't hear. There's nothing in our lives where he is not present with us right there in that moment. Great assurance comes from that. It's not just that, though. God's also omniscient. He knows all things. It's not just that God knows more than everyone else knows. God knows all things. So he knows your need. So he knows what's best for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Again, there's great assurance there. And of course, God's omnipotent. He is, he's sovereign over all that he has made. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. In other words, God does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission to do it. Our God does whatever he pleases. There is nothing he can't do. There is nothing that is beyond his power. He is accomplishing all of his good purposes, and no one, nothing can stop him. Nothing and no one can even make him wait. He does what he wants when he wants to do it. That should fill us with assurance. The God who knows all things, the God who is with us at all times, the God who cares for us, can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I can remember as a kid traveling, and we'd be in a big city and maybe in a rough area, and I would just feel like, well, Dad's here. There's absolutely, you know. I don't even have to be that close. As long as Dad's in the vicinity, I'm totally fine. I should have looked back to when we were really young and got mugged in San Francisco and said, that's not true. There is a way to stop Dad. It turns out it's a baseball bat. But as a kid, that's how I felt. But Christian, the almighty God is with you. He's for you. And no one can stop him from doing what he wants to do. They can't even slow him down. Oh, how good is that? That's where assurance is found. So, so Abraham considers who God is. Abraham fixes his eyes on God, and God fills him with assurance that he is able to fulfill his promises. That's the nature of all true saving faith. It has full assurance in the promise of God. I believe you, God. 
I believe what you have said. I believe your promise. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Faith isn't some vague, wishy-washy, superstitious hope. No, true faith substantiates what we hope for, giving full assurance of the things we haven't seen. The, the, the word assurance here, it's, it's a word of solid, concrete reality. It speaks of a guarantee of ownership, like the title to a car, like the deed of a house. That's an assurance. It's something certain that lets us know without a doubt that what we possess is actually ours. It's real. That's what faith is. Faith is an assurance. It is, it is a reality that assures us that what God has said is ours is ours. It's an assurance of the promise that God has given us. Hebrews 11 calls faith being certain of what we do not see. That word certain, is, the word is Conviction. It's, it's proof. Saving faith is a, it, it is a proof. It is a test that has been passed. It proves that the promises of God are true. It is fully persuaded that God is trustworthy. So saving faith is an assurance given to us by God, given to all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and since that's what faith is biblically, it's wrong to think about faith apart from its object. Abraham looked to God, and that is why his faith was strong. Abraham looked to God, and that is why God counted him as righteous. It wasn't the size of Abraham's faith. It was the object of Abraham's faith that made all the difference. And the Lord is calling you today to faith. He's calling all of us to Faith, not, not some sort of vague notion that everything's going to work out. We talk like that. Even Christians will talk like that. We shouldn't. You just got to have faith. Well, let's, let's talk about what we mean, because the world will say that too. They'll say that, they'll say that same expression. What, what, what do we mean? It's not just some vague notion that things are, everything's going to work out. It's going to be fine. That's not biblical faith. It's not what what faith is. No, no, he's calling us to a very specific trust in him. A trust in the promises of his word. When we talk about the promises of God being rock solid, we talk about everything he has promised he will surely do, that that is an unassailable truth that we can stake our lives on. We're not talking about some vague promise that some YouTube personality claims they heard at 3 o'clock in the morning, some Saturday morning a few weeks ago when the Lord spoke to them. I have no assurance whatsoever in those promises. I suspect they're more related to late night pizza. We're talking about the promises of God's word. The promises that he has seen fit to, to, to give to us perfectly we can stake our lives on those, and saving faith does stake its life on those. That is the only place that hope is found. Friend, you need to know God is calling you personally to faith. That is the only place that you have hope. That's it. You've got no hope apart from that. Finally then, saving faith works. In other words, it actually saves 
It actually saves, it actually accomplishes something in the life of the person. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham's faith was counted. It was, it was credited to him as righteousness. That, that's saving faith. That's converting faith. Abraham was not righteous, and then all of a sudden Abraham was righteous. When one believes in Jesus Christ and his promises, his promise to save all those who call on him because of the sinless life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God credits to that believing person Jesus' very own perfect righteousness, his own perfection. This is our greatest need. We need the righteousness of God. As we have seen many times in the book of Romans, we don't have any righteousness of our own. We cannot stand before a holy, pure, and perfect God in our own righteousness because all we have is unrighteousness. But it's this spotless, perfect righteousness, Christ's own righteous status that becomes ours only by grace alone, through faith alone, not by earning, not by working, not by meriting. It's the free gift of God. But this free gift that grants the righteousness of Christ, it has a sure result in the life of the believer. Saving faith obeys God, gladly, constantly. A a faith that doesn't obey God is not a faith that saves. It's a false faith. It's a self-deceived kind of faith. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now again, we've got to get the order right. (coughs) It's essential that we understand this obedience is not the cause of our salvation. It is the sure result of our salvation. But this righteousness of God credited to us, always produces in the believer comprehensive righteousness. The the, the true children of God care about pleasing their heavenly Father. And so if you don't care about obedience, if you just say, I'm just glad, you know, I'm definitely saved, I prayed a prayer, I'm glad not to be going to hell, but I don't need to obey God. Friend, John says here the reason that you feel that way is because you don't actually love God. That's really what it means. You don't love God if you don't obey God. Now, now that doesn't mean we're going to have no sin in our lives. Abraham wasn't sinless, of course. (coughs) Abraham, Abraham stumbled many times, but true believers' lives are marked not by sin, but by obedience. And they, they look at their sin with grief, not indifference. It's not just, well, nobody's perfect. No, it grieves us to sin. John MacArthur then says, holiness is not the perfection of our life, it is the direction of our life. In other words, if you've been justified by God, if you have been declared righteous by him because of Christ's perfect work, then you are going to live that righteousness out. That righteousness, if it has been given to you, will exhibit itself in your life. Those who have been saved by Christ, who have been given God's own righteousness, are given new hearts. 
given renewed minds. They're now, as J.C. Ryle says, bent towards holiness. He says the general course of the Christian's life is in one direction, toward God and for God. If your guilt and rebellion has been removed from you and replaced by Christ's own righteousness, of course that must exhibit itself. And so if your life isn't exhibiting that your guilt and, and condemnation and rebellion has been removed and replaced with Christ's righteousness, then it may well be because that transaction has not occurred in your life. Your life will testify rightly about you. So what would God say of you? Have you trusted savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his word? Are you living for his glory? Does the pattern of your life testify that you are? Is your life marked by obedience to him? Not perfection, but the pattern of your life is one of obedience to God. Not what happened two years ago or ten years ago. Your life right now. Does your life right now in this moment testify that this transaction has happened? Is the general direction of your life for God, towards God? Do you walk as Jesus walked? Have you been transformed? If the answer is no, then let me be as clear with you as I possibly can. If you do not see the evidence of salvation in your life as Scripture gives it to us, you are self-deceived and have never been born again. You remain in your own unrighteousness. To put it bluntly, you are not on your way to heaven. You are still in that pit awaiting a further realization of just how bad things are. So I plead with you, if that's you right now, ask God to save you. Jesus stands ready to receive you. If you'll receive him as your only hope of salvation, if you'll trust in him like Abraham did. Abraham wasn't a righteous man when God saved him. He'll have you. Call, call on him. Cry out to him. Renounce your sin. Trust in Jesus. He will save you. He will give you his own righteous status and then he will gladly reward you accordingly. When you stand before the righteous judge, he will look at you and he will say, nothing but perfection. And then you'll get the reward perfection deserves. Oh, there's no better offer than that. And if you've answered, yes, I see these evidences in my life, even with a deep awareness of your own weakness, of your own shortcomings, then the Spirit gives witness that you can know, you can have full assurance, even as Abraham did, that all of God's promises to you are true. You can have full assurance that you are justified because God says he will justify the one who comes in faith. And you're free to walk as God has called you. You're free to rejoice in this salvation. You're free to not be left wondering and always shrinking back in fear that somehow you're going to do or say the wrong thing and it's going to cost you your eternity if you have trusted in Christ. You can just have joy in a salvation that can never be shaken. 
It can never be taken from you because God's promises are, are sure. You can celebrate and rest secure knowing that Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection have been applied to you by faith. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you stand before God justified, having Christ's own righteousness credited to you, and that he has given you eternal life, and that every one of those promises to you is guaranteed. Friends, that is the gospel. That is good news. And that is where our hope must be found. We must look to God. In these days, there are a million things that are uncertain. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the, we don't know all the ramifications of the elections in November and what life's going to look like after that one way or the other. We don't know what's going to happen with this virus we don't know even no matter what happens with the virus, what our government might do in regard to the virus. There's so many things we don't know. <clears throat> Friends, let us, like Abraham, not consider things from a man-centered faith that looks at the circumstances around us and how we interpret them, what we think might play out, what men are telling us is possible and not possible, what people are saying about the world, let us instead lift our eyes to God. Trusting because of who he is that all of his promises are sure and unshakable and then let's live accordingly. Let's live like inheriting sons and daughters who are accompanied at all moments by the almighty God who can do whatever he wants to do and will do whatever he wants to do knowing that every single purpose of his towards his sons and daughters is good. It's for our good. It's for our joy. Friends, we can live with peace. We can live with hope. We can live with joy. We can live with boldness. This is the gospel he's given us to proclaim to the world. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, what a gift, what a treasure, what a kindness you have given to us. Lord, even as we consider our brother Abraham, who, who you had made certain things about yourself clear to, and yet he had so much less information than we have. You could have left all humanity like that. It would have been enough. Lord, your, your offer of salvation is so far beyond anything we could ever wish for or deserve. It would have been enough, and yet you've been so kind to us to, to give to us your word that we can know you. Lord, that we could never even plumb the depths of that which you have already revealed to us, and we know that even a billion years from now in your presence, we'll still be astounded in new and fresh ways at your glories and your grace and your might and your mercy. Lord, we rejoice in you, our God. Cause us to lift our eyes to you, to fix our eyes on you, find our hope in you, to find our peace and our rest in you. And Lord, yes, to be bold, to be bold ambassadors for your kingdom, for your namesake, because we live in a dark world, this world that is, is still locked down in the abyss of rebellion and wrath, and they desperately need your gospel. So Lord, give us hearts that are overflowing with love for you, causes us to love every person we come in contact with. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim this truth to a dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.